Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Have you ever considered the Bible to be vague? On the contrary, the Bible is very clear on so many issues, disobedience being one of them. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah brought God's word to the people warning over and again of the threat to their existence if they continued to rebel against God. Slow learners, apparently. Tonight, Dr. Corbett lifts a curious phrase from Jeremiah and its grave warning. As a shepherd cleans his cloak of vermin. Hmm. Let's join Dr. Corbett now. This is a, a, a strange, kind of a strange passage. And it's also a deeply, deeply moving passage. And I want to explain to you why in just a moment. This is called, As a shepherd cleans his cloak of vermin. Now, this is an expression that Jeremiah refers to in this passage, and we'll be looking from verse 8 down to verse 13 of Jeremiah chapter 43. And this is taken from verse 12. As a shepherd cleans his cloak of vermin. Now, I've got to tell you, I was trying to think, how does a shepherd clean his cloak of vermin? What are vermin doing in the shepherd's cloak? <laughs> and so I, I begin to, whenever I look at a passage like this, I'm, I'm asking these sorts of questions. But then I, then I want to show you some of the questions that we can also ask that we may not automatically think of. So we're going to just back up one verse just to pick it up because the story this far is that Nebuchadnezzar has come into Jerusalem. He has conquered the city. He has killed many of the priests and many of the royal family. He has executed the king, Zedekiah, whose name used to be Mataniah, uh, has been taken prisoner to Babylon. And Mataniah, the last thing he saw before he had his eyes burned out by the king of Babylon, was the death of his own sons. Nebuchadnezzar has taken these nobles with him back to Babylon to help him build his own empire. And meanwhile, he has placed, uh, he has appointed Gedaliah, who was a Jew, who was from a good family. We're already introduced to his family earlier on in the book of Jeremiah, and they are noted for being a good family. And Gedaliah is appointed the governor of King Nebuchadnezzar. And Gedaliah, we've seen, was a good man. And unfortunately, sometimes being good gets confused for being nice. And Gedaliah was also a nice man. And that actually became his downfall. And as he was assassinated, we see Yohanan, who was a, an ex-army officer of the army of Israel, pursued his assassin and rescued those people that this assassin had taken and brings them back to Jerusalem or brings them back just outside the city of Jerusalem because Jerusalem is now in rubble. And Johanan says to Jeremiah, seek God on our behalf. Tell us what we should do. Jeremiah comes back to them and says, this is what you should do. Stay in the city. Submit to the king of Babylon. Do everything that God has already told you to do. And whatever you do, do not go down to Egypt. That will be very bad. If you go down to Egypt, do not go down to Egypt. That's the background. Let's pick it up now in verse 7. And they came into the land of Egypt. For they did not obey the voice 
of the Lord. And they arrived at Tarpanhas, Tarpanhas, which is in the east of Egypt. How does, how does Jeremiah feel? <laughs> Jeremiah, since the age of 12 or 13, has been pleading with his people, stop grieving God. Stop doing this. Turn back to God. Forsake these idols that you've bowed down to. Stop throwing your children in the furnace just outside the city of Jerusalem. They were taking their newborn babies and throwing them into a potter's kiln as a supposed offering to the God of Molech or the God Molech. So that, they said, Molech would help them to have more bountiful crops. And Jeremiah says, stop doing that. Stop killing your children. Stop committing adultery. Stop hurting people. Stop abusing people. And for the most part, for the next 25 years or so, as Jeremiah's prophesying this, they ignored him. And Jeremiah also said, if you do this, God will send Nebuchadnezzar in from Babylon. Babylon will come in and he will destroy the city. He will kill your young. He will take your best and he will take them back to Babylon. And this city will be destroyed. And that is exactly what happened. And even then, when they saw that everything that he said would happen did happen. And there aren't many atheists who build a case for atheism based on anything Jeremiah said, because the case for, the, for Jeremiah only, the only possible explanation that Jeremiah was able to say these things so accurately and see them fulfilled within weeks and months and years of his life. And then, by the way, Jeremiah goes on to talk about the coming Jesus, the Messiah. Again, accurately fulfilled 600 years before it happened. The Bible is a unique book. The only reasonable explanation is that it is indeed divinely inspired. And so despite all this, despite Jeremiah being shown to be accurate and credible over two or three decades, and despite these people coming to Jeremiah and saying, just give us the word of God, whatever it is, whatever the word of the Lord is, we will obey. That's what they said to him. The start of chapter 43, we will obey. And he gives them the word of the Lord And they don't. And now against his will, he's taken by them into Egypt. He didn't want to go. Now as a prophet who was charged by God to bring the people to repentance, to bring the people to see that they needed to stop worshipping false gods. They needed to once again re-engage with the word of God. And in every step, he's failed. How does he feel? How Does Jeremiah feel at this point? My question is, does he feel successful? (laughs) How could he possibly feel successful? Let me ask a completely different question of this text as we consider this. Was Jeremiah successful? And you see, it depends on how we define success, doesn't it? You see, if success means popular, accepted, Lots of likes. He wasn't successful. Recently, Kim and I were at an event where a young Christian leader 
expressed his reluctance to speak up on Facebook or Twitter or even in front of people whenever someone bagged out Christianity and Christian values. He said, I I, I just don't want to say anything because otherwise they won't like me. I want to say something to under 25s before we're done because this person was under 25 and and Kim and I, we we got in the car after that and I was like, we are in deep trouble. Just generally as a church, we are in deep trouble. If our under 25s think the goal of Christianity is to win the approval of the world, we're in trouble. Was he, was he successful? Yeah, he actually was, wasn't he? If your measure of success is, this is what God asks you to do, and you do it to the best of your might. That's success. You know, we all have an audience of one, and it's a capital O in one. God is the one to whom we should live. We now come into Jeremiah chapter 43, verse 8. And I've said all this by way of foundation and introduction. Let's see if we can pick up this story. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah at Tarpanhes. Take in your hands large stones and hide them in the mortar, in the pavement that is at the entrance of Pharaoh's palace in Tarpanhes, in the sight of the men of Judah. We've seen already Jeremiah's had to do both speaking as prophecy and acting, drama, acting out prophecy as well. And so now he's taking these large stones and he's putting them in the pavement. And let's listen to what he's about to say and say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will send and take Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will set his throne above these stones that I have hidden, and he will spread his royal canopy over them. So you can imagine Jeremiah's taken these large stones, he's, he's pulled up the pavement, and he's put these stones there, and then he stood and he's yelling <laughs> to everyone who's listening, thus says the Lord, This is where Nebuchadnezzar is going to come. He's going to sit his throne. He's going to put his tent here. He's going to set up camp here. And all that you see here, none of it will be left. After Nebuchadnezzar, my servant, is finished with this place. Now, why were these these Jews in Egypt? Why were they there? They were fleeing Nebuchadnezzar. They were trying to get away from Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) They thought they were escaping from Nebuchadnezzar. And now Jeremiah has just said, this is where he's going to come next. Hmm. No wonder Jeremiah didn't want to go there. But consider what Jeremiah has just said. It's not like Jeremiah is being vague. It's not like in three months' time, Jeremiah could say, yeah, I told you so, and nothing particularly has happened. Jeremiah is saying this, this spot right here, not there, not there, here. And it's not just any old king who's going to invade. It's Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It's him who's going to do it. This is very very specific. 
So these prophecies are not vague at all. Very specific. Consider that that's actually a trait of the entire Bible. The entire Bible is not vague. It's not vague about who God is. It's not vague about your relationship to God without Christ. It's not vague at all. It's not vague about how everyone should live, whether they are Christians or not. It's not vague about that. It's not vague about who Jesus is. It's not vague about how you can go to heaven. It's not vague about Christ's role and intention for the church. This is not vague. And this is one of the main facts about the Bible. It's very specific. We come to verse 11. This is what Jeremiah is saying about Nebuchadnezzar. He shall come and strike the land of Egypt, giving over to the pestilence those who are doomed to the pestilence, to captivity those who are doomed to captivity, and to the sword those who are doomed to the sword. <laughs> now let's see. Famine, sword, and pestilence. Hmm, where have I heard that before? That's exactly what Jeremiah had been saying for all those decades back in Jerusalem. And now he's saying, you thought you were running from it. <laughs> I told you, stay in Jerusalem. This was the word of the Lord. You should have stayed in Jerusalem. So the very thing that they, these refugees, they're, they're fleeing their home country. Their home country is war-torn. This is what a refugee is, someone seeking refuge. The very thing they thought they were running from and fleeing from is the very thing that in a matter of perhaps months, would destroy them. There's a powerful analogy in life here. Sometimes people run far and they run fast in an attempt to flee from God because they're afraid. How many of us are afraid to open up our heart to God and say, God, I surrender? Have your way in my life. God, do whatever you want in my life. Even if it hurts, have your way in my life. How many of us are afraid to pray that? Because we think he might do something to harm us. The one thing I know about God is he will never harm his children. Never. Why are some people fearful? Why are some people reluctant? The moment we start to talk about God being a loving father, for some people they go, oh, father, yeah, I've got one of them. I know what they're like. And so for them, why are they afraid to come to God as their father? Why are they afraid to say, God, have your way in my life? And the reason is because they've been hurt. People who should have represented God have hurt them. And perhaps for you, it's going to take a little while before you come to trust that God will never do anything to harm you. He just won't ever harm you. And then there are some people who are afraid to come to God because they have done wrong. <laughs> and they know it. And no one knows, but they know God knows. And for each person who's experiencing something of this i've really got something 
I think is quite welcome. And that is this. God is for you. He's not against you. God will never harm you. He has done everything he can. He has paid the highest possible price to show you how much he loves you. And he genuinely has your best interests at stake. In fact, that's an essential ingredient of what real love is. But then there are others. And the reason they're running far and fast from God is because they're just rebels. No one's going to tell me what to do. These people, more often than not, look religious. They dress up their rebellion with religion. And they try and look right. And they they present themselves as holy and Christian and spiritual. But really they're proud. They're really proud. You can always tell a proud person when you say, I think you're proud. Their immediate response is, I am not. They're arrogant. The thought that they could be wrong, the thought that someone else could know more, the thought that someone else could be right, who disagrees with them, incomprehensible. (laughs) They're arrogant. And this is what happens whenever someone who is a rebel at heart Fighting God, running from God, fleeing as fast and as far as they can. This is what will always happen and can only happen. They will be lonely. They can only be lonely. Because they put up walls, they wear masks, they won't let people in. Because if people get too close, they might see what they're really like. And for those people that try to get close to them, the bridges that they build, these people burn those bridges down. And then they wonder why they're so lonely. And we see Jeremiah dealing with people who are afraid to surrender to God. Something changes in Jeremiah from this point. Here's the insight I want to give you. We're at chapter 43. There's 52 chapters in Jeremiah. And from chapter 43, this part, this moment right now, Jeremiah knows he only has months to live. He will die in the prophecy that he's given. And he knows it. And I approach this text looking at Jeremiah who knows he himself is a part of this prophecy. He hasn't got long to go. And I've got to tell you, it changes the way I look at Jeremiah and it changes the way I look at this episode in Jeremiah's life. This is verse 12. I shall kindle a fire in the temples of the gods of Egypt... And they shall burn them and carry them away captive. And he shall clean the land of Egypt as a shepherd cleans his cloak of vermin. And he shall go away from there in peace. Hmm. Now I've looked at just about every major Bible commentary on this verse to find out, is this an expression of speech? A shepherd 
cleans his cloak of vermin. And the fact that you probably have a range of Bible translations here. I'm using the English Standard Version. But if you've got other Bible translations, you'll see that they say he shall shake his cloak and shake out the fleas and nets. Other translations have he shall take his cloak, he shall arise, take it off and fold it. So it can't be an idiom, an expression of speech. Some, there is a picture that Jeremiah is painting that has not been painted, even in their own language. So this is the, the picture. This is the closest thing I've got to a cloak. This was actually made for me. Um, my sister's a dressmaker. And the first time I went to Russia, she said, you'll need one of these. And so she measured me up and made this. This cloak for a shepherd would be his blanket it would be his bed it would be his shelter it would be the the thing that he would lay down in at night and sleep in his cloak you'll see proverbs about this you'll see if 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 you lend someone money and they say look take my cloak as a guarantee that i will pay you back see this thing's very precious this cloak's very precious So the shepherd at night would lay down with his cloak on and over him. And you'll see this all through scripture. Um, Ruth Ruth lifts the the bottom of the cloak of Boaz and lies at his feet in the middle of the night, which is apparently a way of saying, I like you, Um, which I wouldn't think you'd need too much guesswork involved if you're a bloke in your bed at night and you find a woman curled up under your doona at your feet. Chances are, anyway, so this cloak, he would sleep in the open field and then he would arise and in the middle of the night there could be all kinds of critters that got into his cloak. So this is what he would do. He would stand up, he would take his cloak off and he would go. And out would fall the fleas, the nits, the grasshoppers, the spiders and then he would take it and he would fold it. And how long did that take? Not long at all. Was it, a, was it a, a, a chore? Not really. It was easy. And that's the point. What's about to happen is Egypt is about to be destroyed and it's going to happen very quickly. And all of you people, famine, sword and pestilence, it's going to happen. And this is the picture Jeremiah is giving. God has a way of fulfilling his word easily. It's going to happen easily because you can hear between the lines how his audience heard him when he said this would happen. You can hear them. They're saying, as if. That could never happen. Egypt has been a major world force for millennia. This will never happen. And Jeremiah says, as easy as a shepherd takes off his cloak, shakes it, gets rid of the vermin and folds it and puts it down. That's how easy God's going to do this. Using Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 13, he shall break the obelisks of Heliopolis, which is in the land of Egypt, and the temples of the gods of Egypt he shall burn with fire. So while I'm thinking of Jeremiah and I'm thinking, goodness me, what Jeremiah's heart must be breaking now. He's just, he's just seen his own end as well as theirs. Oh, man. But, you know, there's someone else who's a player in this story as well. And that's God. 
When God is inquired of by Jeremiah, God, what is your word for these people? And God says to him, stay in Jerusalem, do not go down to Egypt. And then Jeremiah faithfully gives that word to the people and they forget it, God. Not going to listen to you. And off they go to Egypt. How does God feel? Do you ever wonder that? Do you ever think that how we live affects how God feels? You ever realize God has feelings? You'll see the Bible actually says God rejoices. Zechariah. God grieves. God is angered. God is delighted. All these emotive expressions in the Bible. When we sin... I think there are some people that think we're breaking God's laws, and we are. But you know what else we're doing? We're breaking God's heart. We're breaking his heart. So let's capture that and how Jeremiah's feeling. And we now reach Jeremiah at almost the height of his maturity. The height of his relationship with God. And from this point to chapter 52, not one complaint out of the mouth of Jeremiah. Not one. Not one complaint. He's reached a place in his walk with God where he's been denied a bride. He's been denied a wife and a family. Kim mentioned to him as we were talking about this, what about the property he bought? He just bought property a few chapters ago. What happens to that? He forfeits it. So he's lost the opportunity to have a family. He's lost all his money. He's lost his reputation. He's been slandered. And he's extremely content. And he's still a young man. Let me come back to the original question. Did he feel successful? I don't even think he was asking the question now. So let me ask the other question. Was he successful? Yeah. He was. He was a young man. He was still a young man who had served God faithfully. 1 Corinthians 10 says, all of this is in Scripture. All of this in Scripture is there for our encouragement. And who should be most encouraged from a story and a passage like this as we now come into the final stretch of Jeremiah's life? Young men. If you're a young man in this place and you're under the age of 25, I'm going to ask you to step up, rise up and start to serve God with a new zeal and a new passion. God is looking for young men, young men. We need young men who will stand up, who will step up, who will be a voice in this generation, who can draw strength and encouragement from Jeremiah. And with a face that won't flinch, be able to honour God before a hostile world that my prediction is, is only going to get more hostile. And God is looking for young men who will do it. You know what? I'm convinced that God is also looking for young people who will do it. Young people, if you are under the age of 25 Will you yield your life right now, right now, in this point, transact something from your heart to God. Don't be afraid. 
Don't be afraid. God wants to take you and make you, and he may have to break you to do it. But he will make you into a person who can shape history and shape the future and shape the destiny of your generation. See, here's the question I have for you. It's not a trite question. And I, and I ask myself this question, have I fully surrendered to God? And so here's the question, have you fully surrendered to God? And of course we could all say, well, I guess I could surrender more. But you'd miss the point of the question. This question is addressed to those who know they are willfully not surrendering to God. You know it. You know you're holding back. You could be holding back because you've been hurt and you don't want to be hurt again. I get that. But God will never harm you. You could be holding back because you've been deceived and you don't want to be deceived again, but God will never deceive you. You could be holding back because you're just afraid of what he might do in your life. God can only do and will only do what's good for any person. Have you fully surrendered to God? As a shepherd cleans his cloak of vermin. It's a curious phrase that tells us what our rebellion will lead to. Can we afford to disregard such a warning? More from Dr. Corbett next week. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, As a Shepherd Cleans His Cloak of Vermin, are available via the website, findingtruthmatters.org, or by contacting us at Lagana Media, PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania, 7277. For regular updates and special offers, please visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.